I want it straight. I want it unvarnished. Just give it to me rough because I can take it that way, you know. So that's sort of how I give it. So so don't feel if if it comes off a little too edgy for you, just tamp it down with your you know your own balm, your own salve. Uh, salve, because I'm gonna probably like give it to you rough, okay. But uh, but just bite off the little chunks you can bite off, and know that I'm giving it uh, with a with a, a, not even a good heart, but with a delicious heart, because I'm so excited that, you know, would you rather me to be, be able to talk to you like that or like talk to us like adults, like adults, right? Okay, so here, here. <laughs> so here it goes. Uh, I, I like to start with a quotation actually from Matthew, you know, because we always talk about Jesus and everything we have to say about Jesus is so sweet. He's like the great shepherd. He leaves the 90 and nine to go rescue the one and all and all of that. And that's true. But in his great sermon on the Mount, he said, do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you into pieces. So the first question that I'd like uh, us to think about, to consider when we are engaging with Buddhism is, am I really interested in this? And what am I willing um, to do? Am I willing to put my all into the work that is required to attain or to reach the goal or to um, inherit the prize because you see a, a buddha is one who is fully awake and who sees and understands reality impersonally as it actually is and this clear seeing causes his or her, her every thought word or action to be the one most perfect most harmless and most solution solution oriented moment by moment by moment because what is taken out is that personal personality part that egocentric part that makes one view everything from their own side like how does this affect me go to bed what's in it for me um me versus them always with us sitting in the center the buddha the awakening aspect is to have uprooted and abandoned this thought of being a separate self. Are you with me? So uh, actually, when he talks about the four stages of, of awakening in the final stage, uh, that is when the conceit I am is finally dropped away. Up until that point, we are still locked in various levels, various degrees or subtleties of the conceit I am. And that's why uh, uh, he gives specific um, uh, indicators for knowing where you are, which fetters have been broken. I mean, so we don't have to wonder where we are. We can just go through the list of fetters and know I still have that, then I know I'm here. You know, and so, but, but the understanding when we talk about in, in, uh, getting things impersonally or not, we have a hard time with that word impersonal, like it just doesn't matter, like we don't care or like it's something like being removed or detached from, but it doesn't mean it in that sense. This kind of 
impersonally means to not just to not see through a lens or have everything colored through a perception of a self-identity where I'm in the, I am at the center of, of everything peering out. It's in that way. And if we start with that understanding, although words are very difficult uh, to really describe things, you have to have a direct experience of something, but that gives you some place, some place to go because people always wonder about when things become impersonal on a human unenlightened level that might mean a kind of detachment. But from a Buddhic perspective, it's moving more towards a sense of examining or understanding every moment uh, as an intimate interconnection with the whole, with everything. And so that's all we're moving uh, away from and towards our egocentricity, you know. And the thing about it is, is if we just kept that one thing in mind, everything else kind of like goes along with it. It's like, oh, yes, um, meditation and dharmic study can help with uh, certain types of, say, um, mental uh, challenges we have. I won't call them illness or disease. We like we got ADD, ADHD, OCD, ODD, PTSD. We got ABC and XYZ. But all of those, you know, may be helped in some way. But the, it's not for that. It's for this, and yet it might help that to the extent that um, to the extent that the mind is not diseased in a certain way that something is not possible at this time. Okay, and when I say that, what I mean is, um, if you're trying to explain something to, to a six-year-old and you're using the languaging of a 40-year-old, it's a good chance that the child won't get it. You know, and it's not because there's anything wrong with the child, it's just that the faculties of, of understanding and languaging are not developed at that stage for the child to get it, so no way to get it. So we have impairments even in this life that are not going to be fixed by Buddhism. That's not what Buddhism is is about. You know, it's like if I want to learn how to read, I can't pick up the Dhamma and say, this is for everything that ails me. This is for everything I need. It will also teach me how to read. You know, for that I need to look for something else. And so a lot of people do come to the Dharma because they are seeking some relief, you know, uh, from some psychological upset or from uh, um, some come because they're sick and even and looking for, for healing. I got an email just last night for someone and they were asking me, you know, they were saying that their dog had parvo and they were wondering uh, about, had a question about uh, healing by thought and could, uh, how, how should he think to produce that person's healing, you know, and, uh, or could I do some thought healing for his dog? And so I said to myself, you know, that uh, I need, and he sent me a text. I said, this is not an uh, answer by text. You, I need a, I need an email. I need an email address or a telephone conversation because this is going to be long, you know. And so, but what I wanted to say to him, if that was all that it took, that there's absolute healing by thought, then 
nobody would die because everybody would be keeping their loved one alive, you know, uh, and themselves by thought. So there are many other factors that go into something. And if we come into the Dharma from the side of our own neediness, then that makes perfectly good sense because that's where we start. But that is not where we stay. And if you go to a doctor for medicine, then you have to be willing to take the medicine. If you don't want to take the medicine, don't go to the doctor. If you, if you, and if you go, <clears throat> sometimes like when, um, when I go, it's funny, when I go to the doctor or when Panya Deepa goes to the doctor, they have to have three chairs because I go, Deepa goes, K goes, you know, because <clears throat> they want to hear what the doctor's going to say, I think to just make sure that I do it or they try to force me to do it. Um, but, but, we, but we all go. But taking up three chairs is what I'm saying, you know. Um, and I feel a little bit guilty in one sense, but in another sense I don't because I know those two, when I'm forgetful, will remind me. I know those two, when I'm forgetful, they will encourage me. I know those two, if I'm not forgetful but I'm obstinate, uh, or at least Ponyo Depot will say, well, go ahead and don't do it and die then. You know what I mean? I mean and then I he puts me in remembrance of the reason that I went. And so I'm saying that when we come to the Dharma, you know, and then we just run through the ticklers and say, no, I don't want to do that. No, I don't want to do that. No, I don't believe that. I don't want to try that. Like, oh, here's one. Okay. So this becomes what the Dharma is for me. But in that way, we'll have a very marginal degree of awakening in that very in that way we will not receive the full benefit of what is offered and so uh the buddha gave us some ways to think about how we should approach entering the stream how we should uh approach this um uh, uh, higher training. And I'd like to share a little bit of that with you because this is the medicine. <clears throat> and he says that we have to really be our own physician. So when we come to this doctor, we're coming to get the prescription, but then we have to fill it. And then after we fill it, we have to take the medicine. And part of taking the medicine is not just taking something and expecting it to work. This kind of medicine is an active, engaged kind of, of pill. You have to, uh, like, really, um, you have to do something to activate it, to make it work. Not just listen to it, not, like, just discuss, discuss it, but there's some action that is required. Uh, for the medicine to have its efficacy. So then Buddhism is this kind of path to awakening. Uh, so a lot of times people say it, it's a, a way of knowing who we truly are. But that's not helpful. It's not that helpful. Because knowing who we truly are and coming in with that idea is really reinforcing what? <laughs> yeah, it's reinforcing the conceit, I. 
So we should like just drop that whole concept from any uh, away, you know, it moves completely away from any goal, any realization that would be attainable. So bodhisattva then, we could say is literally, uh, well, sattva means a, a being, you know, like a living being. Bodhi means uh, awaken. And so an awakened being or a being bent on awakening, desiring to awaken. And I say it that way as opposed to one who's already awakened, but who's just not entered into their awakenedness until all beings are. Uh, the Buddha didn't say it that way. Um, he said he would speak and he said, when I was yet an unenlightened bodhisattva, blah, 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 you know. And so unenlightened means being destined to awaken, right? And bodhi, or chitta, is the heart mind. So that's a, a being whose heart mind is destined for awakening. And that's what we are. Now, when he talks about an arhat, and reaching a certain conditional requirement never to return to this world, but it doesn't necessarily mean that their work is complete if their goal is to be a Buddha, because there is the awakening of the heart-mind. So he talks about how to understand this step-by-step. And he says that his dharma is set before you as an admonishment of what not to do. Ergo, an encouragement also of what to do. So when he's talking, he talks about what not to do. or And then he talks about what to do. And I like this way because whichever way you can accept it, Take that side. And if you can take both sides, that would be good. It helps you be, to be able to hear it from one way or from the other way. And he says, friends, though a bhikkhu asks me, let the Buddha admonish me. Oh, this is Mogalana. Let, let me be admonished by you. He says, if he is difficult to admonish and possesses qualities that make him difficult to admonish, if he is impatient and does not take instruction, then his companions in the holy life think that he should not be admonished or instructed. They think of him as a person not to be trusted. What qualities makes one difficult to admonish? When we are dominated by unwholesome wishes, self-centered wishes, when we praise ourselves and disparage others, when we are angry and easily overcome by anger, when we are resentful, when we are stubborn, when we utter words bordering on ang anger, when, when one is reproved, they resist the reprover, or they denigrate the reprover, or they counter-reprove the reprover, <clears throat> or when one is reproved, he prevaricates. He leads the talk aside. 
or he shows anger, hate, or bitterness when reproved, or he fails to take responsibility for or account for his conduct, or when he's contemptuous and insolent, or envious, or fraudulent and deceitful, or obstinate and arrogant. When he adheres to his own views, holds on to them tenaciously, relinquishes them with great difficulty, these are all qualities that make him difficult to admonish. And though he says he comes to know, it is impossible for him to know. And then he says what makes him easy to admonish? And he uses these same things. You know, that's what I like about the, about the Buddha. He doesn't give uh, an opposite and use a different word, a confusing word, so you have to figure out what that means. So when, when you know what anger is, he says the opposite of that. Whatever you're feeling right now, whatever you're experiencing right now, whatever thoughts are coming up right now, the opposite of that is the antidote. That's the medicine and it's not the medicine you have to take. It's the medicine you have to offer to yourself. Okay. So he talks about um, not resisting the reprover. He talks about not counter reproving the reprover. He talks about not prevaricating, talk leading aside, but listening intent, intently. You know, he talks about not being angry, not being resentful, not being stubborn. So whatever feelings arise that you cause somebody say, like, I'm angry all the time. I don't want to be angry. What is that feeling? You know what it is. You know when it's present. You know when it's not present. So first is to recognize and acknowledge that we know what state of mind we're in. It's not like we lost our mind. We know exactly what it is, where it is, how it acts. When it acts up, we know all of these things. And so it's wonderful to me to know, I mean, actually, that's the good news. Like, we think we don't know, but it says you look deeply, <laughs> and we know. You know. We may not know exactly what to do. Ah, now that's the second step. And he gives the steps, but if you say, oh, no, that won't work. Oh, no, I don't want to try that. <laughs> I'm too good for that. No. He gives, he's, you have to be willing to try these. If you tried whatever works for you and that hasn't worked, then try something else that he's offering. Not just say, well, I don't ascribe to that view. I, I don't think that way. He says, or go see another doctor. If you don't want to ascribe to what in In my judgment, my being the Buddha, in my judgment is the cure for your sickness. That's okay. But then create a vacancy. I mean, I have a, a neurological appointment, and the doctor's saying, we need to get in uh, right away and see what's going on in, in your head, you know, all this dizziness and some things. And so, so uh, I call for an appointment. And... Uh, one day went by, didn't call me back. The next day, didn't call me back. The next day, didn't call me back. So we get down to the end of the week, and they finally call. I'm like, yes, you know. And they give me an appointment for a month and a half out. I said, I said, well, I hope I don't die in the meantime. 
She says, oh, no, 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 oh, don't say that. I said, how about you saying I can give you an earlier date? I said, would you put me on for the first cancellation? And would you call my doctor back and make sure this is not urgent? Because six weeks out is a long time. And I said, you know, when, when I first called in, it said that these messages are recorded, so I just want to put this on record. Okay, and, and that was it. And she hasn't called me back yet, but I will check on it. Uh, you know, because if I didn't think it was urgent, I wouldn't be going because they had to drag me kicking and screaming to the doctor, you see. So I already know myself. So if I go, it's time to see me. I know that inside. And so there are things that we can know about ourselves, how we think, how we move. And this is what our challenge is, to work with ourselves on these things, you know, not what we're good at not leaning into our strong suit, not there to watch over everybody else, but really looking deeply to know oneself is to know the Dharma. And so he says, this is how one ought to infer about himself. He says, a person with unwholesome wishes is displeasing and disagreeable to me. If I were to have unwholesome wishes, I would be displeasing and disagreeable to others. A person who praises himself and disparages others, who adheres to his own views and holds on to them tenaciously is, and relinquishes them with difficulty is displeasing and disagreeable to me if I were to adhere to my own views, hold on to them tenaciously, relinquish them with difficulty, then I would be displeasing and disagreeable to others. A bhikkhu who knows this should arouse his mind, thus I shall not adhere, cleave tightly, hold tenaciously to my own views. I shall relinquish them easily. Because he knows something about the relinquishment of views is not necessarily the, the uprooting or the uh, disempowering or the uh, uh, canceling out of our view, but it leaves room for additional information to come in. And unless we're open to that, we won't know any more than we already know. Is that enough? Then you might think you're already enlightened and, and nothing else for you to do. You know, so it's that way. So it's this open, it creates this opening. This way is just to make sure that there's not something else that needs to be added to what we <coughs> already, already know. And so he says, this is how we should work um, with ourselves. And in this way, he says, think of a woman or a man, young, youthful, on viewing the image of his or own face, her own face in a clear bright mirror or in a basin of clear water, seeing a smudge or blemish should make an effort to remove it. It is a gain, a great gain for me that it is clean. So too, when one reviews himself thus, then he can abide happy and glad, training, enjoying and training day and night and abiding in wholesome states. And that is Sutta number uh, 15. Then he goes on to talk about 
removing. Uh, he talks about the wilderness in our hearts. That's Sutta number 16. First, he talks about being easy for the Dharma to admonish us. If we come to the Dharma for instruction. Then he talks about knowing the wilderness in our hearts. He said there are five wildernesses in the heart. And then any bhikkhu who has not abandoned these five wildernesses, not severed the five shackles in the heart, that he or she should come to growth, increase, or fulfillment in this dharma and discipline, it is absolutely impossible. So we can be trying our best to overcome uh, our defilements, to break our fetters, you know, he said, but it would be absolutely impossible unless we have addressed these five wildernesses in the heart. And you can Google Sutta 16 and you can work with it. But he says, what five? Here, one is doubtful, uncertain, undecided, and unconfident about the teacher. And here is the capital T. So it means the Buddha, the Buddha's Dharma. And thus his mind does not incline to ardor, to devotion, to perseverance, and to striving. And because his mind cannot uh, incline in that way, this produces a wilderness in the heart. The second one is doubtful, uncertain, undecided, and unconfident about the Dharma. Just all over the place. He says, as his mind is in that way, it cannot incline to ardor, to devotion, to perseverance, and to striving. And it is the second wilderness in the heart that has not yet been abandoned. The third is one is doubtful, uncertain, undecided, and unconfident about the Sangha, the community of friends. The fourth un is doubtful, uncertain, undecided, and unconfident about the training. And the fifth one is angry and displeased with his companions in the holy life, resentful and callous towards them, and thus his mind does not incline to ardor, to devotion, to perseverance, and striving. And it says, these are the five wildernesses in the heart that if he has not abandoned them to grow, increase, and find um, fulfillment in the Dharma and in the discipline, the way that we walk out our lives, he said, it will be impossible. And you can Google that uh, sutta, and I'd like to ask you to do that, all of you who have computers this week, because it breaks down these five shackles in the heart and how to uproot them. Then he goes on to, let me start at the beginning, removal of distracting thoughts. He says there are one, two, three, four, 
five ways that we can remove uh, distracting thoughts in pursuing the higher mind. These five signs. You know, so like you're saying, like I'm feeling angry right now. How do I, if anger has arisen and I couldn't stop it for, from arising, then how do I deal with it? You know, and uh, and my thoughts are proliferating around anger. What can I do? I'm, I'm in the throes of anger. How do I neutralize that? How do I stop it? That's my question. Okay, so he tells us. He says, when giving attention to some sign, and owing to that sign, therein rises in him an unwholesome thought connected with the desire for that thing, with hatred towards that thing, or some sort of, of delusion. He should give attention to some other sign connected with what is wholesome. So change the thought. When I'm thinking about that thing that somebody did to me, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll even start to articulate it. The Ponya Deepi says, I, I'm so frustrated. When he says, well, that's, that's for you to deal with, you know, uh, that, that frustration. If, if you're the one frustrated, how can, what does that have to do with the other person? Deal, deal with your frustration. He says, stop talking about it. Change your mind. You know, think about something else. And basically, he's not saying, don't come dump it over here. You know, <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, or if I'm complaining about something, you say, you signed up for that job. You know, I didn't sign up for it. So, you know, because I know it takes this, you know, and if I don't want to do that, he says, I don't sign up. You sign up saying, oh, this is going to cause me suffering, but I'm going to do it anyway. He said, then follow that all the way to the end. I mean, that, you know, but see, I appreciate that because I do want to sign up for something that may cause me, you know, some. Uh, yeah, yeah, but I'm I'm willing to do it. But sometimes the heart can be willing. I hold you one second. I see that hand. Heart can be willing, but the flesh is weak. You know, that's part of my development. That's part of my training. That's that's my way of walking the path. He has a different way. He says I decide beforehand how much aggravation I want. You know. And where I want to put my energies. And if I don't want to put it in that, I do this. If you do that, that means you're deciding how much you are willing to take on. Or that that's your path to trading. He said, have go at it. He said, you know, and so, so we have to recognize that we're deciding these things all the time. But then when, you know, we get flustered or we get upset or we, you know, then we start putting it on there and they did such and such. You know, yes, he wants to say something. And they did such and such. But he says, keep, keep your decisions with yourself. That's what being grown up is. Keep your decisions with yourself. And you can learn from experience. You can learn next time, don't go that far out on a limb because you can't handle it. Or don't go that far out on a limb because you're really not committed to, go, to sticking with it when, you, when those kinds of things come up. They're obstacles for you. If you can't run with the big dog, stay on the porch. You know, so it's that kind of that kind of talk you know this is this is a good friend in the dom you see now i have my reverses on ponya deeper but i'm just keeping it i'm just keeping it real with me yes okay so you want to volunteer for something that gives you emotional turmoil right right you well no like you don't want to volunteer for it you volunteer for it knowing that like this is gonna hurt but i'm gonna do it anyway because right. it needs to be done 
and I can do it. You should become a substitute teacher then. <laughs> so, so I agree. Substitute teachers have a hard, and actually, I am a substitute teacher. So I'm getting, you know, the the disrespect that goes with being a substitute teacher. You know, so I should not be upset about that, right? Because I already know I'm the substitute. Uh, so I should be cool with it. Thank you. I mean, I see what I'm talking about. You can learn something from everybody. I appreciate young people so much because I like just call it like they see it. They don't have to figure out how to how to patch it up and you know and and make it so complicated. It's just simple. If we get simpler like that, I'll tell you that is the path to cutting to cutting through because it's really just allowing our illusions to drop, to fall. We're not really moving to any place. <laughs> you know, it's still all right here. It's just all of these conceptualizations, letting them drop and fall and crumble. So he said, just change your thought. The same way you're thinking about that, there's a thousand things you can be thinking about at this moment. Just move to another one. Okay. The second one, he says that, that if that doesn't work for you, then you should examine the danger in the thoughts you're thinking right now. You know, more than just saying, I know I shouldn't be thinking like this, but, you know, but no, it says you should uh, uh, examine the danger, you know, like where this is taking you, you're getting angrier and angrier over something that happened this morning. You're only 50% angry, but the more you think about it, the more you, you talk about it, the more the anger increases, the more the infraction, the bigger the infraction becomes in your mind. And then it shifts from just the infraction to the person. And he always does that. And, you know, and it, and it just grows. We're just proliferating thoughts and making it grow into something else. So he says that if you can't just change your thought, then think about the danger in thinking this way, how, where it takes the mind, where, you know, uh, these thoughts are unwholesome, you know, and they are resulting in my suffering right now, even though that thing is not even happening now. But I'm suffering again because I'm thinking about it, you know, just running it over and over in my mind, seeing more things in it than I saw this morning, you know, adding to it. So he says, this is how we train ourselves. It says, he um, says, and when one examines the danger in their thoughts in this way, the mind will become steadied internally, quieted, brought to singleness, and concentrated. So if we think that we can like just sit, 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 and that's going to bring our concentration to the place that we want, he's saying you missed it. You sit, but there's something that you're doing while you're sitting. <laughs> and that is paying attention to our thoughts. Now, if no thoughts arise, we are abiding, you know, in that tranquil place. But if thoughts arise and they start to agitate us, you know, they said, just penetrate that until it goes poof. How? That thing that's coming up, how we neutralize it by turning our minds to something, the opposite of it. That's what rubs it out. If we can't do that, think of the danger, contemplate the danger of such a thought instead of the thought. 
He said, if that doesn't work, he says, then one should try to forget the thought and not give attention to it, just as a man with good eyes who did not want to see certain forms that had come within range of his sight would either shut his eyes or look away. So we may not know exactly how to do this, but we each have to learn how to do it. It's like when my granddaughter was learning to tie her shoe, you know, and she was fumbling around and I stooped down to help her. You know, she said, no, Grandma, by myself. She wanted to learn how to tie her shoe by herself. So these are things we have to, we have to experiment. This is the active part of this. And then we come to know what thing works for us or what thing doesn't. Not, not, not just trying it one time and throw, oh, that didn't work. But again and again and again, just like when we were learning to walk and we pull ourselves up and we teeter and we pop down, plop down. And we pull ourselves up again. After a while, we take one little step and we plop down. And then we get up again and in, in, in a little while we can take two steps. And then we start running really fast before we fall over. And then after a while, we can take our, our, our time and we can walk because we come steadier and steadier and steadier on our feet. It's in that way. So we have to apply some patience, right, to our training. And so then he says, and if that doesn't work, then he should give attention to stilling the thought formation. When he gives attention to stilling the thought formation, then any unwholesome thoughts connected with desire or with hate or with delusion would be in, uh, abandoned in, in him. For example, just as a man walking fast might consider, why am I walking so fast? What if I walked slowly? And then when he slows down a little, he might consider, why am I walking slowly? What if I just stand? And as he stands, then he might consider, why am I standing? What if I just sit? And he'd sit. And then he might consider, why am I sitting? What if I lie down? And he lies down. And he says, by doing so, he substitutes for each grosser posture one that is more subtle, one that is more relaxing, one is, that is more at ease. So I might ask myself that question when I'm getting so upset. Why am I getting so upset? I mean, that's that person's MO. You know that that's how they're going to think and act and respond every time. So if you choose to engage with them, you need to be prepared for that. So what if I just go on what I know, that this person is explosive? And if I really want to get my point across with them and talking to them, how might I, how could I have spoken in a way that could not, uh, that would not feed an, an explosion or an eruption? And how could I have said it in a more kindly way? Or, and then I think, oh, you know what? I could have said such and such. Now I'm starting to neutralize, you know, my anger because I'm investigating what I could have done. Okay. And then when I get to the post, I could have, I could have said it a little differently. 
Okay. But then I'm thinking, did I have to say it at all? No. Or was it my place to say it? Or to do it? How would I have felt if somebody did it to me? Now I'm thinking a little, I've become more refined in my thinking. You see, he, in other words, he tells us that when the explosion happens, he shows us how to back up off of it, how to step back bit by bit. All of this takes efforting on our part, but this is the kind of effort that is right effort, you see. It's taking ourselves from right where we are at the moment and how to fruitfully uh, disengage, unconnect. And he says, if that doesn't work, and there still arises in one unwholesome thoughts connected, then he should just beat down, constrain, and crush mind with mind. Beat down, constrain, and crush mind with mind. And this has to do with getting back to what our real intent, uh, uh, intention is. What am I looking for and why am I here? You know, sometimes uh, we have to do things that's not comfortable for, for us, you know, uh, whether it's through an error we made or lack of discipline, uh, early on we find ourselves here. For instance, I have to take insulin shots. I do not like to take them. I could have done something earlier on with diet. I could have done s something earlier on with certain disciplines that I didn't put into place. But now something's not working in the body, and it takes this to keep living. So as much as I hate giving myself the needles, for now, I have to give myself the needles. So everything, uh, not everything we have to do to bring about the kind of healing that we want is going to feel good. So if, you know, if feeling good is a requirement for you to do it, then it's a good chance you'll never reach your goal because everything is not pleasant. We have to be able to be with the pleasant and the unpleasant. Now, he says, here's a clue to what helps you be with the pleasant and the unpleasant. It takes a you to define it as pleasant or unpleasant. So the bottom line is about the abandonment Self. That's it. Everything else comes with that. And to the degree that occurs, the suffering is not there. So when we are suffering, then we know that we're firmly rooted and established in the self for that moment. Or we're firmly entrenched in a self view perceiving everything from our our seat uh, our seat of power if you will and seeing where that how everything and everybody affects me am I at the top of the pecking order am I at the bottom you know is are you for me or against me I think that's how they used to say it you know so something like that everything from the perspective of the eye that's all it means that's all you need to know I'll say that's not all it means, but it, that's all you need to know to begin 
to open up to the process of ego identification. And he gives us the means to step back bit by bit. But I can tell you, you're not going to get it in an hour every two or three days. First of all, we forget 90% of what we hear. And so, and we probably distort 5% of the rest of that. So that only leaves a very small amount, very little gasoline in our tank. But like everything, even in a worldly sense, you know, that we want to get better at, that we want to advance, it takes effort. How much are you willing to give to let go of suffering? Because we're the only ones who can let go of our suffering. We are the only ones who can realize that nobody and nothing out there causes us suffering. We choose to suffer. Now, I'm not saying that there is no um, pain. I'm not saying that there are, is no such thing as anybody doing a, you know, when I say wrong thing to you out there. But the suffering part of it is optional. That's what I'm saying. And the more of that we get, the more we will heal our world. Take my body, for instance. I, I just learned a startling fact that only 10% of the cells in the human body is human. The other 90% are cells of other things, uh, like bacteria, virus, etc. And I don't know whatever else is. Only 10%, 10%, 90% of the remainder of the cells in the human body are not human. Has it always been that way or is it something that's ever Yeah, that's, that's it. So what it points to is that the body is not like this individual, but we're comprised of many kinds of beings in here that make up this body. And they all have to work in tandem in a certain way. You got good bacteria and you got bad bacteria. And when, you know, and when they're balanced, then your, your gut works right. But if, you, if it destabilizes and you have more bad bacteria than good bacteria, then you have a gut problem. It's that, you know, it's, there's so much that we don't even know about the body mechanism and how it works. But if we understood some of that, we would, it would break our our mental fixation with our sense of separateness. We're not separate from anything. We're two, uh, 90, we, we share 98% of our, is it chromosomes or genes with the chimpanzee? Is it, you know, I mean, we're 2% we're away from being a monkey. Is it, you know, I'm just saying that if we really understood how this whole interconnectedness, we would think it's so ridiculous to walk around here thinking about this separate independent I. And every, almost every voice, every message, every billboard, every sound or sight that we hear or see 
keeps propping up this notion of this individual self. But it's just not so. But see, even 2,500 years ago, the Buddha knew this. In his advice to his own son, he said, develop meditation on the elements, the earth, air, fire, and water, because you are that. He said, and then he said, develop meditation on loving kindness. And if you do, ill will will be abandoned. So if you're a person who's constantly, you know, um, terrorized by a rising ill will, meditate on loving kindness. Loving kindness in the morning, in the midday, you know, in the evening and at night. Just stay with loving kindness. That's the medicine. One prescription. Loving kindness. Giving your wor yourself words of loving kindness. Words that are newer to kindness. Words that are newer to forgiveness. Words that are newer to compassion. Words that are new. He says, if you do that, just a steady diet of that, then ill will will be uprooted in you. If you are the kind of person that is cruel or want to see something happen to somebody, you know that's not right, but I just can't get rid of feeling that way. He said, develop your meditation on compassion because when you do, cruelty will be uprooted in you. If you're the kind of person that's discontent, never satisfied, always complain about something, nothing's good enough for, for you, you know, he said, develop meditation on altruistic joy. He said that if you are the kind of person that's always wanting something, grasping for something, greedy for something, needing for something, he said, develop meditation on foulness. And when you do that, all these kinds of lusts will be abandoned in you. He said, and then when you've done that, he said, when you've meditated on the earth, the air, the fire, the water, as the components of what you call your body, he said, when you have considered that you can spit in the wind, pull garbage on the earth, burn, burn throw trash in the fire, and these elements are not offended, Neither are they humiliated. Said, so let your meditation be like that. Deal with yourself until you uproot all sense of humiliation, frustration, anger. These, this is the process. We just want to get in there and, and commune with the gods or, or see, um, you know, heavenly worlds or, you know, I don't, I don't know. We just want. I don't know what we're looking for in it, but he says these things have to be done first. This is where you start. And tell us no need to do that. When there's no need to do that, when all of those doors are wide open, then you'll be posited at the next gate of knowing. But we want to just jump over to the 10th level. You know? But there is a progression, doorway after doorway opening. It's like falling dominoes. We don't even have to try to get anywhere or do anything. Just tipping the first domino, according to the instructions, it will cause each additional domino to fall down by itself. And he said that when you do these things, he says, then you meditate on 
impermanence. And when you do that, the conceit, I am, will be uprooted. And now you're ready to develop meditation on mindfulness of breathing that is developed, that when developed and cultivated is of great fruit and great benefit. So you see someone came and they found that mindfulness of breathing and they pulled it out and set it up and says, here's the answer to our wrong. Here's the answer to our mental illness. Here's the answer to our frustration. He said, ah, but they missed all those things that came before. It takes those things that came before to create the platform for there to be any true mindfulness. And so he said, having gone to the forest or to the reed tree or to a meditation center, or to a sangha, sit down, fold your legs crosswise, set your body erect, and then establish mindfulness in front of you. Breathing in and breathing out. So I don't know where you are. I see that hand. I don't know where you are on that tandem. But if you've missed these steps, go back there because that's what's hindering you. Thank you for coming today. May you be well and happy and peaceful. May no harm come to you, no danger. May you always be able to meet with the inevitable difficulties of life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.